Welcome to People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose is a podcast of inspiring people whose stories help you see things differently, live with intentionality, elevate the way you participate in the world, and take the necessary leaps in your life to seek and find your passions. Come with us and develop the courage to wholeheartedly pursue your purpose and unleash your truest potential. If you'd like to grow in your purpose with us and have something you can contribute to People of Purpose, I am welcoming volunteers. If you have a skill, an idea, or a resource to bring to the project, please, please let me know. Send me an email at peopleofpurposepodcast at gmail.com or a direct message through our Facebook or Instagram pages at People of Purpose Podcast, and we'll get in touch. As I continually move into a greater pursuit of my purpose, teaching underserved students in San Francisco and pursuing a master's degree in education, I can use all the help I can get. If you're good with social media, audio editing, outreach communications, videography, or more, please tell me. And if you know and would like to suggest a person of purpose, please do. Finally, as we grow, I'm looking for your ideas for upcoming products and services that we could incorporate alongside the podcast to help people experience a greater sense of purpose. Please don't be shy. Let me know. Hey guys, this is your People of Purpose podcast host, Tanner Badgley. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you find value in receiving a very short email every other weekend that personalizes your path of purpose? The POP newsletter, because People of Purpose, is a very short email where I share with you the most interesting things I've recently discovered, have been thinking about, or implementing into my life each week to more personally and purposefully pursue my purpose. It will include a short update on how my podcast is helping me grow into my purpose. A quote that's been on my mind from a purposeful resource such as a podcast, book, video, or mentor. As well as a nugget of advice from my experience on how to better align and optimize your life for your purpose. And finally, I'll try to share inspiration with you on how one of our listeners is benefiting from people of purpose. So please take a small step of action right now by sending a quick email to peopleofpurposepodcast at gmail.com. You don't even need to write a message, just include in the subject header, People of Purpose Newsletter, and you'll receive the very next one. We are created to bend, not to break. I began to see with my own eyes, with my own hands, with my own heart, with my own brain. Anger is fear's bodyguard. We are feeling creatures who think. Dr. Lori Desatels is an assistant professor in the College of Education at Butler University, teaching undergraduate and graduate courses in applied educational neuroscience. Lori's passion is engaging her students through neuroscience and education and integrating mind-brain training and learning strategies into her courses at Butler University. She's also co-teaching in a middle school classroom two mornings a week, teaching students about their brains, stress response systems, and giving them the tools to buffer everyday adversity. Lori also travels the country preparing educators in applied educational neuroscience and creates brain-aligned discipline frameworks with students who carry in pain-based behaviors. Lori is also currently working on her third book, Eyes Are Never Quiet, with co-author Michael McKnight, which will be out in 2019. I really enjoyed my interview with Dr. Lori Desatels today. I was beaming with delight by the time it ended. What Lori says really speaks to my personality and passions. I think she gets at the core of how we can use our brains to take back control of our lives and plot out a new destiny regardless of our past. The insights she shares and the details of her methods were eye-opening. She's really working at the leading edge of research in education. And like she says, it's a whole new paradigm of research that sees a student as a feeling being who thinks, first and foremost. We must meet the, like she says, we must meet, first meet the child at the brain level before we can begin to make sustainable progress academically. Her findings are very inspiring and give her students a sense of hope and optimism they never had before. Listen to the episode and learn about the concept of regulation and brain-focused activities in our classrooms, and you'll be asking yourself what you can do to better regulate your behavior and focus your attention to meet the demands of your life. 
It really is a blessing to have Lori as a resource now that I am beginning my intentional walk into the world of education and particularly adverse childhood experiences education. I trust that you will enjoy this insightful, thought-provoking, and uplifting conversation with Dr. Lori Desatels. Well, hello, Lori. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very happy to see you. I... Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me um, just in this discussion and sharing this important work. Cool, yeah. So I was recommended to you by my last guests, um, who I guess you said you don't really know them, but they really look up to your work. I know, yeah, that they draw a lot of inspiration from the research you're doing. So I felt like reaching out for that reason. But also, um, like I just mentioned to you, I I think a lot of what you're doing is very in line with, with the field I'm stepping into. I'm working in a school in San Francisco serving underserved students with a long history of trauma, generational trauma. I think some of my professors will be getting at some of the work that, that we're about to talk about. I'm really excited to learn about some of the nuances and depth of uh, yeah of this kind of research. So thank you so much for being on. I think what you do is really important, and yeah, very thankful to have your voice. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> so you said that your purpose is attending to the emotional, social, and cognitive development of all children and youth through brain science, helping educators and communities to understand adversity and the power of regulation and relationship. I'd like to unpack that from your, pers your personal level first and then go into the details of the work that you do. I'm wondering, when you were a kid, did you have an emotional or a cognitive adversity that has really shaped a lot of your research as an adult and, and your purpose? You know, that's a great question. and. Um... I don't think that as a child that I had, I can't, you know, because I've been going back to that. Was there a specific moment, a time, you know, where there was adversity, where this really created this huge purpose and just this passion that I have in this discipline? But I think as a mom today, um, I our oldest son, um, who is 26 years old, is um, has been probably just one of my greatest teachers, and he has gone through significant anxiety, which, by the way, is our country's number one kind of new learning. It's, it replaces learning disability. I mean, anxiety is so prevalent in our world today, and, and this country is seeing it in students and teachers. And so um, I think, you know, being a mom to a child who struggled so much with um, anxiety and just trying to find ways to cope with that was has been a huge um, factor in this work. So it's just it, and then I just I look at so many different environments and so many different adversities that are really plaguing children's innate genius, and I mean that genius ability. So that is that's huge right now, and it just it keeps me up late and gets me up early in the morning. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So you talk about innate genius and you seem to really stress that. You you seem to think that people have a very high potential. What is it that's getting in the way of people fulfilling their potential and how do you help to fill that gap? So I love how you just worded that. And so we are actually just wired for connection and relationship. The human species needs one another. And we also are wired for resiliency, where we are created to bend, not to break. And so I look at children across this nation right now that have um, it, this incredible potential to learn, to engage, and to feel so many different emotions. But what brain science is telling us right now is that... Um, when the brain and body are under chronic and especially unpredictable stress, it actually derails the part of the brain that we need to learn and to use in our daily life and in school. So we're seeing this almost hijacking of this frontal lobe um, you know, right behind our eyebrows is this area of the brain that's the newest part of the brain. It's the last part of the brain to develop. And when we are in a fight-flight response, 
um, that part of the brain does not get the fuel it needs to learn. So we see children falling farther and farther and farther behind, and they're classified as being cognitively impaired when in all actuality, these are children that are coming into classrooms with significant adversities. And so that is, um, there's a study, and we can maybe talk about that this evening, called the Adverse Childhood Experience Study. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really driving this work for our communities and for teachers and parents and for mental health practice, for all of us, actually. Yeah, that's the ACES study. Is that how you... The ACES study. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I was introduced to that by a guest a few episodes back. And yeah, it's we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. So yeah. I'm wondering, like, you're part of this kind of cutting edge uh, group of researchers that are looking at how trauma and stress affects learning abilities that have previously been called disabilities. When was your like light bulb moment that helped you realize, wow, there's actually something else that's in the way of the of them realizing their potential that's not just like a genetic deficiency? Yeah, I so um, I had a light bulb moment about five years ago, and I was actually teaching at another university, and I was observing first and second year uh, masters of arts in teaching special education teachers in our graduate program at Marion University. And as I was in the classroom observing these teachers, I realized that I had lost touch. I was not walking their walk. And um, I had been a former you know, teacher for seven years of children with emotional disabilities and learning disabilities. But I knew this research and I knew it well but I was just lecturing at the, you know, in the evenings to graduate students and to undergraduate students. And so at that time, I called our deans and I said, I've got to get back into the classroom. So what actually happened five years ago changed everything for me. And that was that um, the university gave me a course release and I was able to return to the classroom. And I was co-teaching in a large district here in Indianapolis. Um, two mornings a week in two different classrooms in fifth grade, I began to see with my own eyes, with my own hands, with my own heart, with my own brain, that these children, about a third of our students are walking in so rough, they're walking in so dysregulated that they don't even have a chance to learn. And so at that moment, um, I realized that as an educator, I had the responsibility and the honor, and, and actually, I absolutely had to get that brain ready to learn. So um, that's where this all began. Um, it was in a fifth grade classroom five years ago as I was teaching undergraduate and graduate, but I was back in the classroom co-teaching, and um, we saw, I mean, it just it, it's just been incredible what's happened since then. Yeah. So what happened with you, within youth in the last five years? How has that more informed your sense of purpose or inspiration for doing this work? So I saw children 10 and 11 years old and 12 and 13 years old as I moved into the middle schools. I saw them absolutely get ignited and excited to know how their brain functioned. And it actually gave them hope because they learned that they weren't bad kids and that there was nothing wrong with them. It was just that they began to see how their experiences had really shaped how their brain was wiring and firing. And children love this. Adolescents love the science. They think it's fascinating to learn how their brain wires and fires to think or how it wires and fires to feel or to move. And so we began looking at discipline through a lens of brain science, and we began looking at behavior through a very objective lens, sitting beside them and and really modeling um, what we wanted to see from them. There was just this, there was kind of an equity, a mutual respect um, as we began to learn this discipline together. Huh. Very cool. So it's like you're you're on the same level with them, and therefore you're able to communicate more earnestly and open-heartedly that's awesome yeah. so what do you think about the work that you're doing gets them to trust you so much and and what about this is so interesting to them so i think that um it feels there's a sense of relief first of all 
along with a sense of being empowered when you understand how these adversities and how life experiences, positive ones and, and, and negative ones, really begin to shape um, the kind of the structure of your brain and, and therefore they produce behaviors. So the kids get this. And, you know, in children, they are so resilient when, you know, our children, so like the greatest time, the second greatest time, not the greatest, but the second greatest time of brain development is starting around fourth or fifth grade. And so that's why I chose to go into fifth grade. And so fifth grade students know that their brain will never, ever be as plastic or more malleable or will ever learn as as well as it does right now. And we share that with them. So they get excited wow. about it. Yeah, it's like this is a, a ripe opportunity for you. It's to... a ripe opportunity. And so they say to me, you know, Dr. Lori, I want to play, you know, professional sports. I want to perform. I want to, you know, I want to do this. I want to do that. And I and I will share with them. So what are you doing, you know, after school or what do you do on the weekends to give your brain that experience? And they really begin to see the contrast of, well, if I'm going home and I'm playing Minecraft all day or if I'm going home and I'm on social media for three or four hours and if I'm you know, whatever I'm doing, those experiences begin to mold how my brain performs. Yeah. And so it begins to make sense to them. They get it. Do you continue your relationship with them into high school and into adulthood? Have you had that long enough exposure for that? It's, I mean, that's been really difficult for me, challenging, but I, because I'm moving from school to school, you know, each semester or each year. Right. But but the, but the wonderful part of that is um, I have a colleague who um, she is the one that I co-taught with in the fifth grade and yeah. she is in the district right now. And so Deanna is um, she has more of an opportunity to follow through um, with some of the students because she's in the district. Right. So that's really been a blessing because she can kind of share, you know, where they are. But but one of the things that it's fascinating to know is that in children and adolescents, Anger is fear's bodyguard. And so children who come from adversity and children who are really coming in with those high A scores, those adverse childhood experiences, all the aggression that we see, all of the, you know, that kind of the oppositional defiant behavior is really about fear. You know, it's really about because you just fear is is something that is, you know, kind of masked by anger. And so when we understand what that means, when we understand that that fear is driving those behaviors that look so inappropriate and so disrespectful, right? it helps educators and teachers to really take a deep breath and to understand what's happening and not to personalize it. Wow. You know, not to, just to really understand that this is a child um, or an adolescent who is, we say, we, we say, walking in with pain-based behavior and mm -hmm. pain-based behavior calls for a completely different approach and a way of building relationships. Yeah. Wow. So if they're quick to trigger a fear-based response and you're coming in and exposing them to their entire background, which is very painful to relive, how do they not get out of this like loop of being trapped in fear? How do you lift them out of that? So that's a great question. And um, one of the things that, so I'm going to share with you probably two kind of like what drives this discipline. And that is we model regulation because all behavioral issues are regulation issues and all behavior is communication. Mm. So negative behaviors, those behaviors that we see that are um, really challenging us um, in the classroom are if, if we can understand that those adversities get under the skin and they become a part of our neurobiology, they really are behavioral. Those behavioral issues are physiological issues. Then we can come at this from a different lens and a different perspective. So when we look at, you know, what's beneath all of, all of this, we help the students to get out of that we, we're helping them by regulating, by being co-regulators. It's like I am my student's external modem because these children did not, they, they come into the classroom and they distrust adults. They don't trust the adults that they are sitting beside because they've never built healthy attachments. 
Mm. And we know that relationship and regulation are the two main ingredients that really help them to kind of elevate and to activate those systems in their brain where they are going to be feeling more regulated and content and peaceful. And what do you mean by regulation? Can you more like define yeah. that or clarify that a little bit? A absolutely. So we say, you know, and everyone knows that we see some kids come into school just rough. You know, they just come in with anxiety. They come in irritated. They come in anxious. They come in um, grumpy. You know, they come in just real agitated, sometimes mm -hmm. angry. Um, and a lot of that is just fear. So when we talk about what's regulating, so to regulate a child's behavior is to sit beside them and to help them to really use the tools of breathing, use the tools of self-reflection. Um, we have them actually we use art. You know, I love Dan Siegel's research. He says, what's shareable is bearable. What you can name, you can tame. And so we use bell work and we use focused attention practices that are meditation practices to really help them to just find that sense of, you know, I'm okay. It, this place is safe. Yeah. So a lot of strategies that we use. To, so that's regulation. Regulation is helping them to just feel a sense of um, calmness and a sense of presence. So is it? Taking back control of their brain a little bit. Yeah, it kind of absolutely. It kind of we call that upshifting, and so it kind of helps them to begin to think a little more clearly, to um, create a pause before they respond. That's yeah. that's what regulation is. You know, it's like almost just like finding that space where you can just sit for a minute and create that pause before you, you know, just lash out at another. Yeah. Do you think that since you've started to teach this, you started to live this a little bit more? Do you live a more regulated lifestyle? I live, so it's amazing how it affects my own life. And in not that I'm doing it perfectly because I'm not at all, but I will. I know when I'm dysregulated. I know when I need to take five minutes or 10 minutes. I even said to my daughter today, I need to, you know, I, I this is, I've been too busy. This is, I mean, I need to walk my walk. Mm -hmm. So absolutely, it becomes a part of your lifestyle. And everybody that I sit beside, teachers, counselors, social workers, the students, when you begin to speak the same language and you integrate it, that's why it's not a program. It's it's a framework for how you live life and how you build relationships. Yeah, I, I love that. I would definitely believe in that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's very neat. That's cool that you've created a culture. It's now like inundated within the culture that it's that's the new norm to allow, allow people to take care of their, you know, emotional and cognitive health before asking them to put more stress and demand on it. Yeah. I really, I mean, okay, so my story, uh, I had this really bad concussion. Um, I had a fall down a mountainside at Yosemite National Park, and um, ever since then, I've had to learn a lot about self-regulation. And for me, when I'm able to just have five minutes where I don't have any outside demands and I can go internally and, and get my breath back, find just like inner calmness, inner centeredness, then I am so much more present. I can consolidate memories so much more clearly. I express myself much better. I don't even feel like I need science to tell me that it works. I just I know it every time I do it. it it's working for me. And the fact that you're able to, to teach children how to do that, that's that's transforming the next generation, I think. You know, I really appreciate your story and your sharing of that. And one of the things that, you know, we understand is that adversity, and I don't even like to use the word trauma because it's kind of becoming this trite, kind of encompassing so many different adversities. But what we know is that children who experience, for example, significant poverty or who have gone through bullying or have had, you know, um, a parent incarcerated, um, and we know right now in our country that a quarter of our children are growing up in significant poverty. And we know that we have 80% calls to Child Protective Services about neglect. So we have children at 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 years old who have responsibilities that they should never have at the ages they have. Yeah. You know, just or the, the, the age that they are, not the age they have, but the age that they are. So what I want to share with you is that it's not meeting a child academically in the classroom. It's meeting them in brain development. 
And so when I when I talk about that, what I mean is, is many of our kids come in so dysregulated and so rough, they can't even tell you how they feel. Not only can they not do an algebra problem or write a persuasive paragraph, but they can't even name how they're feeling. So, wow. so we are creating brain-aligned bell work and procedures and routines that is not appropriate that you build into your instruction that help the students to get calm and centered and feel felt. Because the greatest we can give to another human being is feel felt by another. And so we have a, you know, we're using um, like the language of the brainstem is sensation. So we're helping children to identify sensations because it's a lot safer to name a sensation than it is a feeling. Like if I said to you, I'm going to give you, you know, if you could tell me if you're feeling tense or tight or fuzzy or numb or uh, sharp or dull or teary or calm or uh, rugged or gritty, those words are sensations. And that's where we need, because those feel safe for all of us. We can draw those. So we have children, we have a sensation word wall list. And we have children come in and adolescents come in and they can choose a sensation and then they give it a size, a color, a shape. And it's very, very helpful to know what that looks like. And when it's out of here and out here, it's much safer to deal with. Um, you know, yeah. when you put some boundaries around it and you give it some structure, it's, I'm going to do that with um, the boys that I'm going to work with tomorrow. I'm going to do this. They've never done this before, but it's called the sensation word wall drawing. And so that's where you meet kids in their brainstem because the brainstem's language is sensation. And so we use even like hand lotion. Um, we give them a choice of coming in and just putting a little bit of scented or unscented hand lotion on when they come in and just give themselves a hand massage as they come to the morning meeting. But we teach these. You know, we give them choices. Um, we have cotton balls. We have things with, we have a cat litter box of lentil beans and kidney beans where they can, you can run your fingers through those, you know, just a couple of times, you know, just to feel the soft smoothness and have that repetition. We open up morning meetings with rhythm. Yeah. Rhythm is the brain. You know, we sleep in rhythms. Our heart beats in rhythm. So we're meeting children in brain development and we're building those strategies in throughout the day through transitions and through morning and the end of the day. So you're creating like a, a sanctuary space within the school for them to have a reset. Absolutely. It is. We call it an amygdala reset. Wow, <laughs> that's awesome. And we're using the same language. So, you know, the amygdala gets a lot of hype. It's not really where the stress response system starts down in the brainstem, but the amygdala is your kind of, that's your emotional smoke detector. And so we're using brain language. So the students use, they know, they're, my five-year-olds know prefrontal cortex. They know amygdala, they know hippocampus, and they know neuroplasticity. We're using, wow. we're using that language with all the students. Why do you think it's so important that they understand the, the, the language, the scientific words for it? Because it gives it credibility and it helps them to understand actually the, the beautiful science beneath their behavior really informs their ability to know that they can change every single moment of every single day. They do not have to be who they were yesterday. They do not to be who they were this morning. That's neuroplasticity. Yeah, that's a powerful realization for a kid to have. Absolutely. Yeah. So how does this play out? Have you Do you have a story that you want to share about how um, a, a kid's life has been transformed from understanding this? Oh, my gosh. So we have um, – so I, I want to share with you it, – Not. I mean, there have been many children and adolescents that – have experienced some real positive effects um, with this discipline. But we have a district here in Indiana that um, is in Austin, Indiana, and it was highlighted in 2015 with the opioid 
um, epidemic. Mm -hmm. And actually this little town made NPR news. And what we, um, so about a year and a half ago, two years ago, um, I began to take this work to the teachers and to the schools. And um, I'm going to, I'm continuing it. Um, this, we, I was there just a couple of months ago or a month ago, and then we'll get finished at the end of the summer. But what we have found is that the elementary school, the middle school, and the high school, I actually did a convocation with high school students, middle school students, and, and you know, shared with them. And the teachers there are working with them in this discipline. And what they are finding is hope. What they are finding is that these children who are going home and into environments where their caregivers are literally hijacked again in this drug epidemic, um, they, they are beginning to understand that this does not have to be my, this does not have to be my story. Um, this does not have to be my life. And, um, it's just, it, it's just very, when the, when the teachers share, um, you know, the impact of this on the students. And this isn't just in Austin, Indiana. This is everywhere. I mean, there are emails and messages coming in all the time about, oh my gosh, this has been transforming. I mean, we've got teachers that I, that are like sending out, they're writing grants to create amygdala first aid stations and amygdala reset stations in their schools and classrooms. Wow. So it's just been, it's been all encompassing. So I'm curious about the vulnerability part of this. Like I, I would imagine that if a student's parents had something really bad happen to them, they wouldn't feel like sharing that with everybody. Maybe they feel embarrassed by it or deeply traumatized and saddened. How do you get them to open up and become vulnerable to share these kinds of struggles? Right. So we don't, we actually don't do that at all. What we're doing, we don't pry into, because the ACEs, with the ACE study, um, it really doesn't matter what the ACEs are as far as it, we, teachers intuitively know that a child, they can look at a child's academic history, they can look at a child's personal history, they can look at their experiences and know that this student is probably coming from a few very significant adverse childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. We don't bring that up to the student or to the family. What we are doing in our classrooms and schools is addressing the behaviors and addressing the challenges that those children bring in in a very personal way with the child, but not bringing up those adversities, not unless they do. I mean, that, you know, that is because you don't need to know that. What, what the goal is, is the goal is to help them feel connected to help them to regulate and to help them to understand that this is not the last word in the story. So right. we don't address those adversities with parents um, unless parents bring those up or unless students do. And sometimes students will share. They will they will share. We have worry baskets and worry jars where they write down in the morning they come in and they take a post-it note and they write down something that's worrying them, something they want to talk about or something they want to throw away. So, you know, those those activities are very releasing. But no, we don't talk about specific adversities. Okay, I understand. You don't pry the students to tell their stories unless, unless they're brought up. You work with connecting to it and then the breath and then regulation and, and knowing that this this is not the end of their story and doesn't determine their destiny. Um, and I can see why that would be very uh, optimistic for them, that they could uh, take back some level of control and have a fresh start. Absolutely. And when when and the, the other piece I want to share about this, too, is that children that come in with what we call pain-based behaviors and bringing in several adversities, um, their traditional discipline does not work with these students. And, and what this calls for, many of these children did not have experiences in their younger lives where an adult was a, as I said earlier, an external modem or a co-regulator. So one of the things that we see immediately that improves well-being, like improves behavior, that literally helps them to feel 
connected is for teachers to be that co-regulator. So when I say what does that look like, we are really looking at discipline through a new lens. And we are really giving them time and space and choice and voice to really regulate with us. When you time a child out, when you say go to a timeout, or when you isolate a child who comes from significant adversity, what we're doing is we're actually re-traumatizing the, the nervous system. And so one of the things that this work is, is helping educators to understand is that these kids, when you punish them or when you um, lash out at them for you know, these very inappropriate oppositional behaviors, What's beneath those, what's beneath that is fear. And so we need to, what they actually need is not to be isolated. What they actually need is for us to stay connected with them through the conflict. So yeah, what do you see your role as being when, when they're going through this storm of emotions? What is your role in that? So, you know, the role is, first of all, to, to really regulate ourselves because and I went, and this is very, very important. A dysregulated parent or a dysregulated teacher cannot regulate the nervous system of an of a child. Yes. Yeah. So, so really, the first, the the foundation of all of this is for me as the teacher, for me as the mom, to really take a hard look at my brain state, and if I'm feeling triggered, and if I'm dysregulated then I need to take care of my brain state. So I need to breathe. I need to move. I need to take care of myself. And I need to say to that student and model for that student, do you know what? I can't talk about this right now because I'm really, really angry. I'm really frustrated. Wow. So we're going to act together in a few minutes. So how has this spilled over into your other relationships outside of school? Like That sounds like a very healthy way to approach parenting, to approach any business relationships to it's really challenging because we are creatures of habit and so the ways we have been behaving and living life become very they become hardwired circuits in our brain and so um, it takes really intentionality and repetition to make those shifts you know this is new right now I mean this is leading edge but what we know is that teachers and counselors social workers administrators they are seeing and feeling a difference. And we're actually training bus drivers right now um, across. I was in Texas and there are a couple of districts here in Indiana. And we're because bus drivers are children's first and last responders. And yeah. so bus drivers see patterns and then they, they have this ability and opportunity to really to connect and to attach to a child in a way that sometimes a teacher can't. Yeah. And. Um, they also have an opportunity to have these sustainable relationships because they see children, you know, sometimes they're their driver for two and three and four and five years. Wow. And if it had not been for our bus driver, for Andrew, our oldest son, when he was in first grade, if it had not been for Pam, his bus driver, I don't know if he would have ever ridden the bus. I mean, this woman was, she was a natural connector. She cared and loved Andrew. She looked beyond and beneath his behaviors. And she was the one who finally, after three weeks into the school year in first grade, got him onto that bus. And this bus driver loved children and they knew it because the truth is we work for people we like. It's really, this is not just about, it's really about all of us. How can we create, it's a new article I'm writing. It's called Touch Points, Resiliency Touch Points. And this is how many touch points do children who come from adversities have in their lives and how can we create more touch points for them in our schools? Um, yeah, so what role does touch points play in helping kids uh, develop that sense of regulation and intentionality over their behaviors? That's a great question. Relationships, so touch points are about building relationships and touch points are about feeling felt. So when we talk about resiliency touch points, relationships can actually 
calm that nervous system. They actually create an, what we call like the, our bodies have their own pharmacy. And when we feel connected and when we feel felt, the body secretes neurohormones and neurotransmitters that are regulating. So when we, when a child can have maybe five different times of the day with three or four different individuals who are very transparent and authentic in their connection with that child, asking, you know, how's your day? You know, you know, what's going on? I mean, very casual, noticing a new haircut, noticing a new pair of shoes, yeah, seeing what's going well and right. Those are touch points. And, and those really repair and heal inflamed areas of the brain where that stress response system has been continually activated. And have you been able to look into how this has changed their family life, their, their life outside of, of school? We haven't yet just because it's, um, I mean, I think there are several. We haven't, so we have, a, we have research going on right now. We have some case studies that are being conducted um, in two classrooms that were um, that were that had these strategies integrated. Actually, three classrooms. So um, we don't have how this affects families at this point, but this is you know this is the work that you know now now that we've integrated this and now that we're seeing we're collecting the perceptual data. And we're collecting, you know, we know that we can see a change and a difference in classroom academic performance, in office referrals. I mean, we're seeing um, huge shifts in yeah. behavior. Um, but but as far as the family piece, we don't have, you know, we don't have that at this point. So, um, and that's going to be tricky. That's going to be yeah, tricky. Definitely. Yeah, I don't, um, I, I'm not sure how. I'm not sure if this is going to change a family system, um, but I think it'll impact it. So it's it's really something that you know we need to really be thinking about. How are you connecting their experience at school of feeling regulated to have a choice and a voice to to find time and space to manage their behaviors? How are you connecting that once they walk outside the school doors? Is there any sort of like ongoing support or? feeling at least they have that, that they have people, you know, with them to help them navigate some sort of hard situation they have to face when they leave school? Well, that is a, just an excellent question. And that's something that just, again, is keeping me up a lot of time at nights because, you know, my, and again, my area is working with teachers and, you know, teachers get to spend 1000 hours per year, you know, typically, generally speaking with each student, I mean, with students. So, um, you know, in classrooms, but there is a gap because when they leave school, you know, they're, they return to environments that sometimes are not real uplifting and not real healthy that, but here, but this is what I want to share in this podcast tonight is the resiliency research. Okay. And the resiliency research um, gives hope to um, our families and to our children and especially to educators. And what that resiliency research states is that relationships matter and one healthy connection, attachment with a caregiver that is consistent and predictable can trump the adversity that this child is experiencing in that time. And I think that's just incredible, incredible research for us to grasp. And what, what do they determine as a healthy, healthy, healthy attachment, healthy relationship? Can that just be somebody that's, that they see once a week for an hour, or does that need to be someone who's, you know, understands all the aspects of their life? It's interesting because I think that the resiliency research is really looking at not so much the quantity or the quality, but both. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, we've always focused on, okay, it's got to be the quality of the relationship. But the new research has said, and Bruce, this is Dr. Bruce Perry's research, and he is stating now that in this resiliency research that it's the quantity of relationships that build healthier brain architecture, not just the quality, it's the quantity. So when saying that, it's the time spent. So 
for, for, for me, when I look at the hours children spend in school and the hours, you know, compared to, you know, if you're playing a sport or if you've got a counseling appointment or if you, if you, um, you know, go to extracurricular activities, your relationship or even go to church, that relationship with the teacher is um, just so critical because that is where the opportunity is to have the quality and the quantity of relationships. Yeah. So I'm curious, why aren't you a teacher? Why do you prefer to be teaching teachers? It seems like you, you maintain some level of detachment from the students that you that you might be getting if you were the teacher. Why do you find more of your purpose fulfilled by being the, the teacher of teachers? So I, it's, it's funny that you ask that because my mom says to me, she says, you know, Lori, you're always, every time when you're in that classroom two mornings a week, when you go co-teach, you're the happiest that you being. Um, I think that's very true. I love being in a classroom, but right now in this time, I feel that at least my purpose, it, since that's the, this is what this podcast is about. I've been a classroom teacher. I still am two mornings a week, but I feel like I can reach more educators and I can um, share this work more globally in the work that I'm doing right now, you know, working with teachers across the nation and, and still stay keeping my foot in the classroom because that's what's, that's what's changed everything as we started this podcast tonight. Right. When I returned to the classroom five years ago and I'm still co-teaching, the dean at our university is still giving me a course release. And so I am, you know, in the classroom two mornings a week. And that is critical to this work. Huh. If I weren't back in the classroom two mornings a week, I would have nothing to say to you. Because that is where um, I see what's working well and right. And I see what's not. And it's made this work very organic and very transparent. So how did you take those steps? That seems like a very courageous thing to do, to ask the dean for a course release. Can you take us through the process of how, how you, you know, figure that out? Um, I think it was just in the story that I shared at the beginning um, when observing first and second year teachers. And I just thought, I'm not walking this walk. Yeah. You know, I just lost touch with just the day-to-day -day being on the ground level and seeing how difficult it was to work with children who come in with pain. And because it's it's just, it's the hardest. When, when you work very, very hard at creating a beautiful, um, you know, classroom culture and you are spending hours and money and your time and your test scores um, are being evaluated, what's being called of teachers today is just incredible. I mean, now we're looking... We're tying teacher merit pay to their students' test scores. Right. And what we know is the brain can't, you know, these children who come in, children who have four ACEs, four adverse childhood experiences, are 32.6 times more likely to have behavioral and academic challenges. And, and so these are kids who are not going to test well. You know, these are kids who are not going to academically perform well. And so yet teachers are pressured into, you know, teaching to the test when they have to look at social and emotional health because mm -hmm. we are feeling creatures who think. We don't think um, until, we don't think clearly until we feel felt and we feel contented right. and we feel positive emotion. So yeah, knowing that we're these feeling creatures and that a student is not likely to perform well if they have four ACEs scores, but also recognizing that there's pressure for funding, pressure for employment, pressure for merit-based pay on teachers. How do you right. how do you bridge that divide so that you can have a more mindful approach to academics and and find like a, a, a school that can create proficient academics and, and good test scores within a, a population that has a lot of adverse experiences? How do you bridge that? So... We bridge it this way, and that's and, I, and this is a great way to end this tonight because this is where the rubber meets the road. Okay. When we embed focused attention practices, brain intervals, when we take all of these regulatory, these regulation strategies, and that they become a part of our routines in the classroom, they become a part of our procedures, they become a part of morning meetings. 
They become a part of our bell work. Bell work is that time of day when students walk in and they've got five or six minutes where they're unpacking their backpacks, they're turning in homework, they're conversing with friends, and then there's the end of the class period or the end of the class day with that same type of opportunity. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing, what bridges that, what builds that bridge is that the, this is not a program, it's nothing extra. When we teach students how to breathe, and when we teach breathe deeply to regulate, when we teach them how to focus on a stimulus, whether it's a sound, their breath, a visualization, a taste, when we create opportunities and model those behaviors throughout the day that is a part of our instructional practice and part of our guidelines, it's a natural way, literally raising test scores and regulating the nervous system. It's incredible. Yeah. It's not a program. It's, it's literally a framework. And what teachers are finding, they're just excited because the time they spend redirecting a child or disciplining a child with the time compared to the time they spend putting these, you know, into their procedures. I mean, it's just, it's a no brainer. Yeah. So it really becomes, it's just like when we, when we build habits of getting up in the morning and brushing our teeth, washing our faces, taking a shower, we have a routine for getting dressed. This is no different. When you build, when you prioritize you're taking five deep breaths, wiggling your toes 10 times before you do anything else. You know, when you trace your hand with a pen and not lifting your pen back and forth until you've taken 10 deep breaths, that just becomes a part of your practice. And you're actually taking care of your brain and body. I love that. Those are some really specific examples I can start to incorporate next year. Very cool. Absolutely. So what have you found in your life helps you to come back to that sense of calm and purpose and relaxed alertness? Um, I, I don't imagine you're tracing your hand with a pen back and forth. What are you doing? Not that, but I mean, I think absolutely using my breath. I mean, absolutely taking even, you know, just a minute. And even in presentations, it's so interesting. I've been speaking so often in so many places that when I'm modeling this, I'm actually, I think I've done more focused attention practices in the past six months than I've done in my whole life. Wow. Um, because, because I'm really, you know, I'm presenting this in a very authentic way and I can't get away from it I, because it's become a part of my life. Although to be very transparent with you, I'm very tired right now. This has been a long haul with the end of the semester. And um, I have a, this is when schools really, call for professional development. So I'm traveling this summer a lot. And mm. um, so I'm, I'm really going to have to be very aware and very, um, you know, just walk the walk, not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. And I thought about that. That's very, yeah, you're very proactive about how you lead your own life and how you help these students and these teachers to yeah, develop a, a sense of moving forward, having purpose, um, and doing so like mindfully and at the at the right pace to meet the kids where they are in their brain development. That just makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and that's very cool that you're able to start proving that through science and long-term studies. So I guess I want to know one more thing. Um, I guess two more questions. But the first is, what are some researchers or some books or documentaries that you could recommend for someone that's maybe interested in, in pursuing this sort of field of research or something very aligned with this purpose? So we are, let, let me give you the, re, the researchers that we are using in our educational neuroscience certification at Butler. Um, and then um, my colleague, Michael McKnight, and I are writing right now um, our new book, and it's going to be specifically about students and educators and adversity. And it's called, it, the, it, the title is Eyes Are Never Quiet. And we hope it will be published um, in 2019. So we're, we're writing it and we're getting it to our publisher, hopefully by the fall. And hopefully it will be out um, along with our book, Unwritten, the story of a living system that's out right now. But Dr. Bruce Perry, his books and research, he has written a book called The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. And I would highly recommend that. Dr. Peter Levine has written um, extensively on somatosensory therapy, which I love. 
because it, again, it is the language of the brainstem. And he's written about, um, he's written a book called Trauma Through a Child's Eyes. And it's excellent. Um, and then we um, also absolutely love Dr. Bessel van der Kolk's research in um, his text called The Body Keeps the Score. Alan Shore um, has been around for a long time and he has just excellent research on attachment and how um, we are in a new paradigm. It's not a behavioral paradigm anymore. It's not even a feeling paradigm, but it is truly looking at attachment and regulation, which is also what Dr. Bruce Perry um, discusses. So, you know, at this point, I love Dan Siegel's work in, in working with um, the, the interpersonal neurobiology of individuals and children. He has Mindsight that is excellent. And Heather Forbes is um, her work in trauma with parents and with schools, too, is um, very powerful. So there are just some really, really wonderful researchers out there that, that I am um, excited because we're taking their research and building these practices and using them in the classrooms. Yeah. Really, yeah. So I'm pursuing a master's of education. And once I get done with that, I, I really don't know what I want to do. I could be, become a teacher for life or I could pivot to something else. How do you take the step to becoming what you are, where you're a professor and an active engager, engager in the classroom and you're, you know, putting theories into practices. What do you do after, you know, after you have your formal education built up? How do you make that transition into the career that you have? You know, I don't even know how I got to where I am, to be honest. <laughs> I think that I, to answer that question, I think that it's your passion that drives your work. And I just stepped outside the box. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm not following anyone's work. I mean, as a professor, when I went back into the classroom, that was the first, I mean, I don't know of anyone that's doing that. I mean, that intentionally wanted to leave. And I'm exhausted because let me tell you something. It's a lot harder to work with third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh graders than it is undergraduate or graduate students. I spend more time, I think, planning for those those students than I do. But I think, you know, just continue to learn Delve in, you know, I think it's really important not to get really stagnated into one discipline, but to really diverse your, when we look at, when you look at your passion, I stepped out of education and my doctoral work and looked at philosophy and looked at Martin Seligman's work in positive psychology. And I think it's just important to really grasp, you know, just the bigger picture and, and follow your passion, follow your purpose. And, and I think that's, I love the book, The Alchemist, because I think that was a huge thing for me when I read that a few years ago and just looking at, you know, education is not just about school. Education is about connection and attachment, and it's about belief systems and a child or adolescent's uh, culture and their ecology. So I think it's just important to really delve into the areas of learning you love. And, to, and, and if you feel a pull to do something, you've got to step into it and give it a go. Wow, I love that. That speaks directly to the theme of my podcast. That's the whole reason I've made this as hey. a media channel for people. Uh, and also, you mentioned The Alchemist. That's definitely one of my favorite books. Read it, oh, read it twice. Uh, the last time I read it, I was hiking the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. And uh, that combination just really, it sunk it deep in me. Like that's a, a part of me, that kind of like spiritual journey that you go on and um, you do it because of the passion, because of the sense of purpose and for others as well as yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you absolutely. for sharing all that. Oh, you're so welcome, Tanner. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you tonight and I'm still giggling over the recording. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, thank you. It was really fun and um, yeah, thank you for thinking of me. Yeah, um, appreciate you giving the time. I know you're a very busy person. You just expressed it very explicitly how how much uh, work you have ahead of you, and um, it's an honor yeah. that you take an hour of your of your life out to to give your thank voice to to this channel and to meet me. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, thank you, thank you, and let me know what you need from me as we follow you know follow up and follow through with this. Okay. Okay. All right. Thanks again, Tanner. Thank you very much, Lori. 
Perhaps the most helpful, inspiring, and uplifting thing that you can do is leave your feedback. I would love to hear from you how People of Purpose is impacting your life. It's so energizing to know that someone out there in the world of the internet is listening to this thing we're creating. It's hard to know how the project is doing when there's not an audience in front of you to give immediate feedback. The weekly personal message or the occasional review is the most inspiring part of producing and publishing this show. It's oftentimes the most inspiring part of my week, but we need more. Let me know what's resonating and what could use some improvement. If you have new ideas or a question you'd like to ask me, please don't hesitate. This is one instance in which you can exercise your personal power to shape the show. Consider yourself our freelance consultant. And don't forget, if you want to sign up for the POP newsletter or become a volunteer, please reach out. Email us at peopleofpurposepodcast at gmail.com or leave a direct message through our Facebook or Instagram pages. Thank you for your support and listenership, and here's to becoming 